I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The future for inheritance tax. The Chancellor has ordered a review into what has been dubbed Britain's most hated tax. But could it lead to policy change? Experts join me in the studio to discuss. And are beach huts a red-hot investment? James Max, our Rich People's Problems columnist, certainly thinks so, despite a tussle with his local planning department. And finding success for the second time around, our money mentor columnist Lindsay Cook on launching a second career in your 50s or 60s. Welcome to The Money Show, the FT's weekly podcast on personal finance and investing. I'm Claire Barrett, the FT Money Editor, bringing you this week's money news. Could it be RIP for IHT? Inheritance tax has always inspired strong opinions from FT Money's readers and listeners. In the last tax year, HMRC collected a record £5.2 billion worth of inheritance tax receipts, which some people think is far too much and others think it's nowhere near enough. So could the launch of a new consultation provide any answers? Ordered by none other than the Chancellor, Philip Hammond, it has already resulted in some strong opinions being aired. One think tank, the Resolution Foundation, said this week that inheritance tax in its current form should be banned. And we've been contacted by hundreds of FT readers who think the tax is unfair albeit for strikingly different reasons. Joining me now in the studio to discuss are Paul Morton, Director of the Office of Tax Simplification, the independent body which is carrying out the government's consultation, and Laura Gardner, Principal Researcher at Resolution Foundation. Welcome both. So, starting with Paul, what is the Office of Tax Simplification hoping to find out with this review? Well, as our name suggests, we're really focused on simplification. And we're thinking about this in two ways. First of all, the Chancellor did ask us to have a look at the inheritance tax system, the gift rules, for example, um, to see whether they are more complicated than they need to be, whether they're affecting the way people benefit from the rules and features of the system. We're also very interested in the administration of inheritance tax and, to be honest, how people feel about inheritance tax. So are people worrying about the tax? Less than 5% of estates give rise to a tax liability, so we think that many people are nervous about the potential implications of the tax, and uh, we'd like to understand that better to see if there are ways of uh, alleviating that concern. 
So the online article on FT.com, which we wrote last Saturday about your review, has already attracted over 200 comments from readers, and some are very critical of the administrative burden. Um, now, one reader, Chris Dickinson, commented from his own personal experience, I'll read it out, one point rarely mentioned is the difficulty in finding the money to pay IHT when HMRC by default expects that you pay the tax before probate is granted and access to the estate allowed. I encountered this problem, he says, when my mother died early last year. No one in the family had assets to pay the tax. The banks wouldn't provide a loan, but fortunately HMRC recognised our position and granted probate before the tax was paid. There's a basic reform here that needs to be considered. And this is a really good example of a case where HMRC were able to help in a difficult circumstance. It's the kind of feedback we'd love to hear more of. We we have a rather moving letter from two elderly sisters who are worried about um, one of them uh, dying and then the house having to be sold to pay the tax. Uh, Whereas were they a married couple, that wouldn't be the case because there'd be no tax to pay on death. So all of these experiences, good and bad, we'd love to hear more. Um, We've had a thousand responses already to our survey Very grateful to you for helping to spread the word. And we'd love to hear more, uh, both uh, for people completing the survey or just sending us an email with their thoughts to um, the OTS email address. Okay, we'll provide the link and the email address um, in a second. But, of course, many readers have reacted more forcibly to the review. And it's no secret that the well-advised wealthy can mitigate the amount of inheritance tax that they pay by using various tax planning measures, the most effective of all, if you're very wealthy, being to give away your wealth while you're still alive. Will the OTS review also cover this aspect? Um, Yes, we're going to look at the uh, the gift rules um, and rules, for example, for passing on a business. And in each case, we're asking ourselves, is the complexity of these rules getting in the way of people who ought to be benefiting from them? Is the complexity causing people to change what they would otherwise do with their uh, with their property um, is it causing people to worry unnecessarily? So all about complexity. That's really within the scope of of our work. Okay, and as you can imagine, there are a huge volume of online comments on this aspect of the story. Many readers said they felt inheritance tax was a form of double taxation, whereas others felt that heirs should be charged income tax at their marginal rate when receiving large inheritances. And another FT reader, JG, summed up the views of many when he wrote in to say... Unless a way can be found to make the super rich pay the same proportion of inheritance tax that less wealthy people pay, IHT should be abolished as it's just plain unfair. Well, this week, the Resolution Foundation, a think tank, published a research paper calling for just that. And Laura Gardner of Resolution is in the studio with us today. Laura, tell us, why does Resolution think that IHT in its current form should be banned? Well, at the moment, we have a tax that's managing to achieve the twin feat of both collecting very little revenue at all and being wildly unpopular. And so we think that's not a great place to start. And the best thing to do is get rid of that hated tax and come up with something better. So to focus on the reasons why it's hated, I think your your, your readers have discussed some of them. It's seen as essentially voluntary uh, for the the rich and well advised, uh, be that, you know, buying up farmland to avoid the tax, investing in what are called aim shares uh, to take advantage of a business relief where you really have no relationship with the businesses you're investing in or just being able to give gifts if you're wealthy enough before passing away. 
pay. Um, also, the high marginal rate, uh, I think, is seen as really unpopular. And the fact that it affects donors uh, at, that are unlucky enough to, to, to die rather than uh, recipients who are lucky enough to receive a big income windfall. So that kind of trio of, of features means it's, it's really um, not fit for purpose. And we think something better can be done. So what fairer system do you envisage it could be replaced with? Well, we've been looking at uh, an approach that we're calling a lifetime receipts tax. And this differs from inheritance tax um, in sort of many of the areas I've touched on. So this is levied on recipients uh, rather than than estates. And that's good uh, because it encourages the spreading of wealth because each recipient will have their own lifetime tax-free allowance, a bit like your personal tax allowance and income tax, but over your lifetime. Because everybody's got their own allowance, there's a big incentive to, to spread your wealth out widely so everybody gets a little bit tax-free. Um, if you did it this way, you could also have lower um, lower rates across the board. So at the moment, inheritance tax is 40%. Uh, this system could have a 20% rate for most and a 30% rate for those who receive large amounts. And we've also looked at measures to tighten up on some of those loopholes that I think make it uh, make the current system be perceived as really unfair. So you can introduce um, farmer tests, if you like. So it's only actual farmers that are handing over agricultural <laughs> land. Have and they got muck on their shoes? Exactly. Well, that's not quite what the farmer test will involve. But you could you could have a picture of it in your head. It's it's something like that. Made probably a lot more boring. And there's also caps you can put on business uh, relief and things like that. So we we get away from this situation where it looks like those with with lots of um, disposable wealth or the ability to get a lot of advice can just avoid a tax that the middle wealthy have to pay. Um, So this lifetime receipts tax, I think, could both address a lot of the reasons why people don't like inheritance tax and it has the ability to raise more revenue. So something along the lines of what we've set out could raise about 11 billion a year in 2020 rather than the forecast 6 billion for inheritance tax. And I think that's really important given the big um, fiscal and other challenges that Britain faces. Well, finally, turning back to Paul, can you tell listeners where to find your online survey and then what will happen next with the ATS review? Uh, Yes. Uh, Well, I have to say the easiest thing which I always do is put Office of Tax Simplification into a browser and it comes up with our website and the first article uh, is the article uh, with the link to the survey uh, and it contains our email address as well. Fantastic. And it's also in the FT Money article online, which is free to read. Um, I hasten to add a free bit of inheritance for you at ft.com slash money. Now, the deadline for people to comment on the survey on the OTS website is the 8th of June, but I understand the findings will be published later this autumn. Uh, in the autumn, yes. Uh, we really appreciate all the feedback we're getting. We're going to be working hard to um, look into the evidence, uh, fact-finding, talking to stakeholders of all kinds, and uh, look forward to publishing our report in the autumn. OK, well, thanks very much there to both our guests, Paul Morton of the Office of Tax Simplification and Laura Gardner from the Resolution Foundation. You can read more on this story and find full details of all the links in the website and in Saturday's edition of FT Money inside your FT Weekend newspaper. On the subject of inheritance, far, far in the future, when James Max's heirs inherit his estate, one of the items they will most likely be wrangling over is his beach hut. Our Rich People's Problems columnist has been writing this week about the pleasures and planning pitfalls of owning a shed by the sea, quote unquote, and he joins me now. Welcome, James. Thank you. So beach huts, they don't come cheap, and you know this because you are the proud owner of one yourself. So what sort of damage are we talking about here? Well, interestingly enough, there seems to be no rhyme or reason as to beach hut prices around the UK, because you can go down to the south coast, 
one recently sold for £285,000. That's as much as a flat. <laughs> uh, well, exactly. And I think it's on Mudderford Spit or something like that. Anyway, I have no idea where it is, but I'm not going there. If you go up to some of these uh, slightly more, I don't know, sort of posher resorts on the south coast, £100,000 you could have to shell out. Uh, if you go up to Southwold, some of their best pitches, £90,000. However, mine not quite so expensive. There was I on North North Essex. It's beautiful, beautiful seaside coast. Frinton on sea. Harwich for the continent. Frinton for the incontinent, so they say. Anyway, so they're very, very top end beach huts. Thirty-eight to forty thousand pounds. Although the prices have been rising quite significantly over the last few years. Okay, so you also spent quite considerable sums blinging up your own shed by the sea blinging up (laughs) but this landed you in hot water with the local council well sort of so the local council used to have this uh, rule that beach huts could only be brown brown or maybe if you're really lucky brown and the thing is that they just looked horrible and uh, over the years a lot of people have started breaking the rules so they started painting them in what i would describe as traditional beach hut colors so white and blue pastel shades pastel shades anyway after mass disobedience by the Frinton, Frinton lot, who are generally quite law-abiding, but every so often, you know, there's sort of anarchy breaks out. People started painting them and they realised that they're on to a losing wicket and they issued some rules. And the rules were that, yes, you can paint them in pastel colours. And in fact, we encourage it. However, when it came to mine, I thought, I'm not going to do what you want me to do because you want pastel colours. No, thank you very much indeed. I want my beach hut to be reminding me of my favourite cake. Which is? Battenberg. Oh, good lord. Now, yellow is on the list and so is pink. It doesn't say anywhere in the rules that you can't have yellow and pink. Anyway, I heard that there was a little bit of sniffiness, but they decided not to approach me directly because I may be rude about them on the radio. (laughs) Well, for anyone thinking about taking the plunge and buying or refurbishing a beach hut, what's your advice? What kind of use are you getting out of your technicoloured shed? Well, let's not call it a shed. First of all, it's amazing. If you haven't got a beach hut, if you've never visited a beach hut, have the opportunity to go and rent one. It'll cost you 25 to 50 quid for a day. It'll cost you 130 quid for a week if you happen to be going to the seaside. Try it out and see it for yourself because it becomes a social whirlwind. It's exciting. There are things you can do in there. It's a wonderful place to read your FT weekend, obviously. But also, uh, you can get in there and you can start cooking. It doesn't matter whether it's howling with wind and it's somewhere nice to keep dry or if it's beautiful beautiful sunshine and it's somebody somewhere to have lunch i mean it is a fantastic thing it's very relaxing you've got the views of the beach you've got a little bit of seclusion you've got somewhere to change you don't have to do all this weird thing where people get a towel and they wrap it around themselves and have to get off their kit and put on their kit just in case anybody should see their their you know ridiculous the bodies and all that sort of stuff. yes well, exactly <laughs> and it really becomes a social thing so people sort of wander past your beach up they come and say hello there's chatting there's a few drinks at lunchtime and what i like to call Hut cuisine. Hut cuisine. Now, you mentioned that you can cook in your hut, but one thing it lacks, sadly, is running water. Well, you say it lacks running water, but there are taps. So you just walk to the tap and you have a little sort of canister that you can get enough water. I mean, how much water do you need? So you can get the water and you can go and go to the tap and people say, oh, is it? Is there a lavatory in there? It's like, no, you can walk to the, I mean, in Frinton, you can walk to the thatched lavatories and and, and they're there and they're, they're available. So it's really not difficult. You don't need electricity. You don't need running water and you don't need a bog. Well, 
Thanks very much there to James Max, the FT's Rich People's Problems columnist and presenter of the Get Early one. Breakfast Show on Talk Radio. You can read his column all about beach huts online from Friday morning at ft.com slash money. Building up a career is something that many people consider their life's work. So imagine doing it for the second time around. According to a new business book, launching a second or even a third career in our working lifetimes could soon become the norm, as many executives in their 50s and 60s are already finding out. Joining me to discuss is Lindsay Cook, the FT's money mentor columnist, who has been looking into this issue. Welcome, Lindsay. Good morning. So many people don't start a second career through choice, but perhaps as the result of redundancy. That tends to be the case. I mean, there was a report from the Prudential last week which said that retirement age is getting earlier, 57 they reckoned was the average, and nobody's drawing a pension unless they're probably uh, in a super uh, public sector pension at that age. So you have to eke your money out. Companies are ageist. Because people over 50 tend to be more expensive, they tend to get rid of them first when they're doing a redundancy roundup. Also, they tend to think that we're past our sell-by dates, that we, we've no longer cutting edge and that the younger people are going to uh, do better than us. A few people are ahead of the curve and they think, oh, I love doing this in my time away from work. Let me start and I'll do this. But for the most, it's an absolute shock. They're made redundant. They can't retire and not many people want them. So the book in question, which is called Purpose and Impact, How Executives Are Creating Meaningful Second Careers by Anissa Hoffman, draws on the experiences of more than 50 executives who had to reinvent themselves. What lessons stood out to you? I think it's mostly the preparation that as you're going up the ladder, you actually have to think, what happens when I reach my um, final point? And Anita mentions a couple of things that one's job crafting and she says you're doing nicely but what do you really enjoy in your life are you passionate about sustainability or other can that be something that you bring into your career and she gives an example of somebody at Marks and Spencer who was moving along and then suddenly said oh we ought to save the planet and that was a move in his career lots of us do it I can remember years ago getting involved with the work-life balance trust and then to basically justify going to meetings, I suggested to the company I worked for we had more flexible working. It actually, I could demonstrate it worked for the company as we kept people, we attracted people. We had one person going three days a week because he wanted to become a novelist. I mean, it wasn't just mothers coming back. It was a whole range of people. Another thing she, she talks about is reverse mentoring. You know, people who get to a certain age may not have the digital skills that younger people have because they're not playing games all day long. Find somebody young that you like, give them lessons in business skills, people management, reporting up and down. The old school skills that you know. Writing reports, all the things that you can do and other people can't. And they may well be able to swap with digital skills. Also, one thing that surprised me was get more involved in social media. Twitter. If you're interested in a new company that you'd like to work for, all their reports will be on Twitter as early as anywhere else. Get yourself a presence there. Improve your profile on LinkedIn. It's not showing off. 
It's just telling people you exist. It's those sort of things that start. But think about it before the company thinks about it for you. Very, very interesting. I have to say my stepson, who is 22, said to me a while ago that your profile on Twitter is now effectively your CV because it will be the first hit if an employer looks up your name. But from a financial point of view, Lindsay, there are lessons to learn here as well with second careers. Absolutely. And I think the first lesson is before you get to second career... Don't live up to your income if you can possibly... And, and I'm talking about people earning a lot. I'm talking about people earning more than a quarter million a year. I've worked with people on those sort of salaries and they're overdrawn and desperate for their bonuses. And you think all these sports clubs and things they belong to can't be worth it. Try and keep hold some money back because if you have, say, 10 fat years of earning, some of that you can save to set up a new business, to cushion... The, the change to reduce your mortgage so you don't have to move house because several people in the book had to move house and that is a real sign for many of us of failure. So it's you're going to have 30 years plus of less money, retirement, whatever you want to call it, and you've got to make a pension that you've built up probably over 25 years last for more than 30 years. The sums don't add up. So you really have to think about what you can do if you've been a finance director of a FTSE company, you may have a superb reputation and be able to move on. But if you've been a finance director of a smaller company, you may not be able to move to another company, if you, especially if you've worked for so-and-so widgets for 20 years. Other companies may not want you. So you've got to think about what you can do. Are you going to do consultancy work? Are you even going to work, say, for a charity, which would love your financial skills or a group of charities? So work out what you can live on because we don't all need the frills. And it's easy to say that when you've got lots of money, but you don't need all the frills. And sometimes a walk in the country is, or a walk to a beach hut is as pleasant as going to a fancy restaurant. <laughs> well, thanks very much there to Lindsay Cook. Great advice. You can read her article and many more on Next Act, which is the FT's new content hub for people in later life. Go to ft.com slash next act. And as an added bonus, all of the articles, including this one, and also our fashion editor, Joe Ellison's take on what we should be wearing post 60, are completely free to read. To give us your feedback or be put in touch with any of our team of experts, do drop us an email, money at ft.com or tweet us at ftmoney on Twitter. That's it from The Money Show this week. We'll be back next week at the usual time. Goodbye. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.